tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 32nd episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And tonight, we're going up north to Maine. We're going to check out the Seguin Island Lighthouse. This is a neat little lighthouse that's up there. It's, uh, as it says, it's on an island. The lighthouse no longer has keepers and stuff staying at it, but that doesn't mean that there's not something still there. Oh. Or maybe a couple of something still there. Well, I can imagine since we've been on a couple lighthouse tours and usually there's quite a bit of tragedy that happens out when you're the keeper of the house. Of course, for me, lighthouses are positively terrifying because I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> so, funny story with that. One day she was trying to think of something fun we could do. And she goes, oh, we're going to go up to this lighthouse. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And so we walked up to the top and I'm like, that's a really weird thing for Diane to decide that we're going to do for a fun day out since she's absolutely terrified of heights. And we've now been up, what, two or three lighthouses? Yep. <laughs> Needless to say, I don't hang out on the little banister area for very long. <laughs> this is true. And I climbing those stairs, that's pretty darn good exercise. Yes, it is. We want to make sure that you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. We've got everything you could possibly want to know about the show there. You can sign up for the newsletter there. It's completely free. You can donate to the show if you'd like to help support our overhead. And if you want to see where we are in different social medias, we've got all the links there as well. If you would like to send us any feedback, maybe you have an idea for a future show or want to let us know what you think about the show, where can they write us, Denise? They can write us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And of course, we always appreciate your reviews at iTunes and Stitcher. Maybe you can't financially support the show, but you certainly could support it in that way. And we greatly appreciate it. It helps to get us a little bit more out there so that people see us and we're a little bit more visible because this show only gets out there via our listeners. Exactly. People sharing it. All right. You ready to get started with the show? I sure am. like to support the show please visit our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash history goes bump or perhaps you just want to make a one-time donation click the donate button on our website at historygoesbump.com The term self-mummification probably inspires some weird images, thoughts, and questions. How does someone self-mummify and why? Monks in the countries of India, China, and Japan have practiced self-mummification as far back as the 12th century. The process is arduous and takes a long time, around 3,000 days. The monk will eat a diet of nuts, bark, roots, and seeds and exercise strenuously, all in an attempt to basically starve himself. The monk's desires to rid his body of fat and moisture. When the desired effect was obtained, the monk would drink a poisonous tea that would help him vomit up bodily fluid that would help prevent maggots and bacteria. He would enter a tomb and assume the lotus position. 
A tube would be run into the tomb to provide air, and a bell would be installed for the monk to ring every day that he was still alive. When the bell rang no more, the tube would be removed and the tomb sealed. Once a thousand days had passed, the tomb would be opened again, and if the monk was found in a perfect state of mummification, it would be declared that he was only in a trance and he would be placed in a temple for worship until he reawakened. Self-mummification recently made the news when a 1,000-year-old Buddha was given a CT scan. The scan revealed something extraordinary. Inside the statue was a mummified body of a Chinese monk from 1100 AD. Inside his body were scraps of paper with Chinese writing instead of organs. We imagine more Buddha statues will be facing scans. Self-mummification is not only a horrible way to die, but quite odd. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> this day in history. Remember the Alamo. Those three words summon visions of heroism and call people to stand up against insurmountable odds. On this day, March 6th in 1836, the final assault on the Alamo was conducted. The battle at the Alamo lasted 13 days. It began on February 23rd, 1836, when Mexican dictator General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana and his troops arrived in San Antonio. Santa Ana's forces numbered 1,500 men. The Alamo had only a little over 100 men to defend it, led by co-commanders William B. Travis and James Bowie. Travis sent out letters pleading for help, but no extra reinforcements were sent. For several days, the Alamo withstood cannonade from artillery batteries. On March 3rd, Travis sends out one final appeal for more men and declares in the letter, quote, I am determined to perish in the defense of this place, and may my bones reproach my country for her neglect, end quote. In the early morning hours on March 6th, Santa Ana orders his troops to attack the Alamo, and a 90-minute bloody battle follows, with the Alamo falling in the end just before sunrise. Santa Ana ordered the bodies of those killed to be burned. Between 182 and 257 defenders were killed, including folk hero Davy Crockett. The cruelty of Santa Ana's attack outraged Texans and drove many of them to join the fight in the Texas Revolution. Today, the Alamo is now the most popular tourist site in Texas. You're listening to History Goes Bump. Seguin Island is an island off of Maine, which can only be reached by boat and is home to Maine's tallest and second oldest lighthouse, Seguin Island Lighthouse. This lighthouse is known by its more common name, Seguin Light, and not only dates back to the birth of America, but it carries a rich history that includes a gruesome tale. What has happened at this lighthouse seems to live on, not only through stories, but through spirits as well. The light is always on at this lighthouse. Come with us as we climb the spiral staircase of legend into the afterlife. Seguin Island sits 10 miles from Booth Bay Harbor at the mouth of the Kennebec River in Maine. The first English colony was established a few miles further down the Kennebec River in Popham in 1607. The colonists left after only a year because of hardships and returned to Europe. There is much debate as to how Seguin actually obtained its name. Most historians believe it is derived from both French and Native American, much like the name of Chicago. The Native American term was Setquin, 
meaning where the sea vomits, because the ocean roils and pounds in this area. Originally, Seguin Island was part of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and it was the Commonwealth that gave the United States 10 acres of the island that later grew to include the entire island after Seguin Light was commissioned. President George Washington commissioned Seguin Light in 1795. The original structure that served as the lighthouse no longer exists. It was constructed from wood and rose to 50 feet. Now, Denise, we live in Florida, so we know how humidity and water and wood all get along together. Who would build a lighthouse out of wood? I have no idea, and especially up in Maine, because not only do you get all the water and the wind and all of that, you also get the freezing temperature. So the wood's being frozen, expanding, freezing, mm. and expanding. It just seems like a very and faulty... And it, it's so harsh down there that I can imagine... It is kind of up on cliffs, so I don't know that the water ever bangs into it, but still, just... You still get all that mist, though, mm-hmm. and the fog, and well, that's why they have the lighthouse. So, ooh, fog and spirits. This could be a scary movie. Oil lamps and crude reflectors served as the first lights. Obviously, wood was a bad idea, as we just said, and the new structure was built in 1819 out of stone. It, too, deteriorated. The current lighthouse was built in 1857. The tower was made from granite blocks that were painted white, and the height of the tower makes Seguin Light the tallest lighthouse in Maine at 53 feet. The keeper's house was built of brick. The first order Fresnel lens was installed at the same time. This type of lens is extremely rare. Fresnel lenses are beautiful masterpieces that were developed by French physicist Augustin Jean Fresnel. The lenses have large apertures and short focal lengths, enabling them to capture more light from a light source and send it across a greater distance, up to 20 miles away. The lens has 282 individual glass prisms. Seguin Light has the only first-order Fresnel lens still in use in the state. And I don't know if any of our listeners have ever seen the lenses for lighthouses, but I love glass as it is. That's one of the reasons I'm in love with Venice, Italy, with just all the glass. And I could just look at the the lights and the lenses and the reflections that they get just by themselves without any light on them. They're absolutely gorgeous. Indeed. It just is amazing. And they seem to reflect every color of the prism. And uh, we do have a picture of the one that is at this lighthouse up in the show notes today. Yeah, beautiful. I'd love to go up and see it in person. Hint, hint. Maine? Maine's well, at least beautiful. not in the winter. I oh. don't mind trying it in the summer. No, Maine in the winter. No, thank you. We'll but have to stop summer. by and say, hey, Stephen King, how are you? Bangor, Maine. I've seen his house there. At least when I went, his house had a wrought iron fence around it with bats on it. That's cool. Yeah. The lighthouse is currently lit by a 1,000-watt electric bulb that is powered by a 17,000-foot underwater cable. But originally, a kerosene-powered incandescent oil vapor lamp lit the lens. Lighthouse keepers were needed to not only keep the lenses maintained, but to keep the oil lamps burning. The lamps burned through two gallons of oil an hour. The first keeper was Major John Polreski, and he established gardening on the island. He was described as genial and quote-unquote Frenchy. <laughs> he was replaced by Jonathan Delano in 1804, who was a less-than-stellar keeper. The Delano family traded 36 dozen wicks for tinware, and so he was relieved of his position in 1825 and replaced by John Salter. Many keepers and assistant keepers would follow, including three women. Yeah, there were so many there, because most of them would only serve for a year, that to list them all would take us half the show. So yeah, I can imagine it wasn't the primo lighthouse keeper place to be. 
up in the cold. Oh, it's funny that you would say that because I was listening to some experiences. There was a woman who was a wife of one of the keepers and she was still alive. And she said it was like hell. And later on they got transferred. I think it was St. Croix lighthouse. And she goes, <laughs> and then I go to paradise. So oh, no kidding from Maine to St. Croix. <laughs> big, big difference. Now the thing when I was doing the research here, it didn't get into it especially on the uh, website that is specific to Seguin Island Lighthouse, if you guys want to visit it. We'll have links up in the show notes and stuff. We know from going to the lighthouses that we visited and reading the history about those, in order for them to get the oil to burn for those lamps, what did they have to do, Denise? They had to carry those huge, vat, I guess, vats. I, don't, I think that's what they're called, but the huge containers of oil all the way up to the top, up those stairs. And like Diane said, climbing those stairs just to go up and see the view is pretty arduous. If you were carrying up one of those huge, however many pounds they they weighed, oil vats up and down the stairs all night long, that would be like a heck of a workout and a tough job to have. In 1895, a tramway was installed to make the half-mile steep climb up to the lighthouse easier. The railway was 1,006 feet long. The cart on the tramway was used to bring up coal, supplies, people, and furniture. It is believed that originally oxen or mules were used to pull the cart upward. Later, the entire tramway was rebuilt and a mechanical engine powered the tram. Passengers were no longer carried on the line after an accident in which the cable that pulled the tram snapped and a keeper's wife was severely injured in 1949. So you can imagine, since I have this fear of heights, this is 106 feet that they're going up. And it's a steep incline, which is why, you know, before they had the tramway, they had to carry, hoof all that stuff up. That's why I said, I don't know that the water ever hit the lighthouse because it's above the water that far. I, I don't know how in the world these people did it. It's just amazing. But this particular time that cable snapped, she had a newborn baby in her arms. She managed to throw it off to the side where it was okay. And uh, I don't know what kind of injury she had, but it was pretty severe. And then the hospital's not like right there. So I'm not really sure what all ensued in trying to get her care and stuff. But Well, and even the care, the level of care at that day and time wasn't like what we have now. But I can't imagine this would be the most terrifying roller coaster ride, only it's not a ride. No. Family life at the lighthouse was difficult. The lighthouse was hard to reach and supply and self-sufficiency was a must. Children were schooled by a tutor who would come for about two weeks every three months. Boredom was hard to endure and would lead to a disastrous outcome for one family at the lighthouse that we will share in a bit. Wives were expected to keep the quarters spotless in case of surprise inspections. The 1950s would finally bring changes in the form of electric generators, radio, and television. In 1963, families were no longer a part of Seguin Light and the lighthouse went quote-unquote stag. Seguin Light was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1977. The station was automated in 1985 and decommissioned, and the Friends of Seguin Island was formed to ensure the preservation of the site. The lighthouse is open in the summer and features a museum and tours. The lighthouse may not be open for business in the winter, but that does not mean that no activity is taking place at the location. Lighthouses around the world are famously haunted, and Seguin Light is no exception. Seguin Island was a treacherous place before the lighthouse was installed. The island is hard to see not only because of rough seas, but the fog that blankets the area on a regular basis is quite thick. Stories of shipwrecks near the island abound. 
There was the wreck of the gondola in 1890. The gondola was a Canadian schooner. Egel had trapped the ship and crashed it up against the rocky ledges. The crew left the ship in a small boat, and despite their best efforts to reach the island, they were swept out to sea. Fortunately, they were found and saved by another vessel. The captain had stayed with the ship, and witnesses watched helplessly as he clung to the hull of his destroyed ship. The captain's body was never found. Could the captain still be hanging around the island looking for his lost wrecked ship? The most famous haunting at the lighthouse revolves around one of the keepers and his wife, although no one is sure which keeper. As we mentioned earlier, life at the lighthouse could be quite boring. The keeper decided to buy his wife a piano to give her something to do. When the piano arrived, it came with only one sheet of music. The wife worked hard to learn how to play the piano, and she practiced for hours with this one sheet of music. And then she practiced some more. And even more. The same melody, droning on and on for hours and hours. Nothing but that same endless melody all winter long. No supplies came that could have possibly included more sheets of music for different melodies. The constant banging of that music was driving the keeper insane. He couldn't take it anymore, and he embraced his inner Jack from The Shining and took an axe to the piano, chopping it to bits. He then turned on his wife, nearly decapitating her. His madness continued as he ran and threw himself off the lighthouse. The haunting tinkling of a piano has been heard over the decades. Former keepers have documented the occurrences in journals, and people who visit claim to hear piano music. The keeper's apparition has been seen many times as though he were continuing to fulfill his duties as keeper at the lighthouse. And I'm not sure how they know it's this specific keeper, because accidents and suicides happen at these lighthouses quite a bit. So it could be any of a number of keepers. And I mean, definitely tragedy goes hand in hand with lighthouses because every lighthouse that we visited has stories of tragedy. There's always somebody dying. Yeah. Yep. Um, one of those experiences about the piano is reported at the Haunted Lights website. Quote, I wanted to mention to you that when I went out to Seguin Island, Maine with the USCG a few summers ago after going to two other lights, I did have an uncanny experience at Seguin Light. I should say first that I heard nothing about any sort of ghost, nor had I read anything at all about ghosts, and merely went along on this beautiful sunny day with USCG while they did their repairs to the ATON. Just a few days before, a couple had moved in to be the keepers at the house at Seguin for this season. They were from California, as I recall. I was standing outside the tower at its base and casually speaking with the woman, and as she was speaking, I heard a piano playing. A rather quick, Scott Joplin-style tune. I thought perhaps it might be an unseen radio, although it did have an ethereal quality to it, almost more like a memory on the wind than music. Since she was speaking to me at the time, I did not think to question her about it or say anything to her. We had just done a walk through the structures, which were impeccably restored. When we returned to the USCG office, the XO asked if his staff had told me about the ghost at Sigwin, which plays the piano. My heart literally stopped when I heard that question. There is no doubt that I had heard it. It is a true story and unforgettable, all the more so in a way since it was sunny, almost timeless day, so quiet yet with high winds on top of that cliff, with the music like a memory more than a song, end quote. Though not talked about much, it is believed that there were several suicides at the lighthouse. One of those was a keeper's daughter whose silhouette is seen walking near the cliffs on occasion. 
She was buried in the island near the lighthouse grounds. The spirit is seen inside the lighthouse as well. The girl's been reported by keepers after they see her running up and down the stairs, and her giggling is heard as well. The Coast Guard has reported their own stories as well. Members have claimed that they heard and saw furniture move and that clothes would be moved as well. Ghostly sounds were heard also. When the Coast Guard decommissioned the lighthouse in 1985, they went in to pack items up. After they had the boxes packed, they turned in for the night, but not for long. The warrant officer claims that he was awakened in the night by a male apparition that was shaking his bed violently. When the ghost saw that he was awake, he demanded that the men leave his home alone and leave the furniture. The warrant officer must have thought that he had only been dreaming or he decided not to listen to the demands of a dead man because the next morning the furniture was packed onto a boat and sent to the mainland. Only the boat never arrived. It sank before it could reach its destination. Did the angry ghost get its revenge? Connie Smith was the wife of a head keeper at the lighthouse from 1926 to 1930. In an interview, she said that they had been warned that there were several ghosts at the lighthouse. She said that she knew a woman who had lived at the lighthouse had needed to be put in an asylum after her stay. A retired lighthouse keeper was convinced that there was a presence in the engine room. He would feel it many times whenever he entered that room. And then there was the first lighthouse keeper at Seguin Light, Major John Polerski. He had a hard time on the island with little food and his boat had been destroyed and so he could not get back to the mainland. He was older and he died on the island. People who pass the lighthouse claim to see an older man on the island when no one is supposed to be there. The figure sometimes climbs the stairs as if he is going up to maintain the light, which is now automated, and so it does not need the daily care of a keeper. And this guy went through hell and back again, the one who went there first. First of all, he asked, can I, t- can I have a bunch of money ahead of time? He was only going to get paid $300 for the whole year. And he asked for some extra, you know, could I get a couple hundred extra dollars? Because how am I going to eat out there? Because supply ships only come every so often. And so they said, well, I guess you could try to garden out there and we'll send some livestock and you you can fish. (laughs) And it was, they were hard pressed. The weather was so harsh there because there's like no covering. There's no trees on this island. It is just, it's grass. It's just barren. And that sits up on the cliff where it's just like. Yeah. So it was hard to even keep a garden going. So any of these families that came through here, it was a real hardship for all of them. And he was the one who had to start it it all. And it was just really rough. So I think it probably killed him that it was so hard. And Oh, no doubt. And once his boat busted, he couldn't even try to get out of there if he wanted to, to go back and forth or anything. Poor guy. Seguin Island is abandoned most days of the year, at least by the living. Are the keepers from years past still carrying on their duties? Can the haunting melody of a piano still be heard to this day? Is sequin light haunted? That is for you to decide. You know, when we were doing our interview with Dan Foytick over at Ninth Story Podcast, he'd said, you know, probably one of the scariest haunting sounds is that of a child, especially their laughter. I think second to that is a piano melody that's haunting in its sound, or as this person described it, ethereal. Exactly. I mean, it's just because if you think about it, when you think about the music scores that really hit you, a piano is a pretty prominent thing there. I mean, number one, Jaws. I mean, who doesn't know that? Ding, 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 and can play it on a piano and stuff. Yeah. Well, and that's a lot of times it's just a few notes on a piano that people are like, oh, and it, you know, Mm -hmm. it like will bring back a memory or a thought. I wonder why, though. It's like, why would she only play? Because you would think after she played that for a while that she might just branch out and just try some try of her own stuff. Else. But it's 
almost like she became obsessed or possessed with the music too, where she just kept playing the same song. Cause I would think that I would at least try to be like, Oh, what happens if I hit these keys or what if I do this, you know, and mm-hmm. instead of just playing the same one over and over. But that, that is pretty creepy. And you wonder how much research the shining did. Is there an insanity that happens when you're in same situation? Yeah. You're trapped. It's cold. In. There's nobody there. And so I wonder if there's just almost like, and I, I've heard that that happens like with the old mountain men too. That they well, that's would where they crazy. get stir crazy from, I'm sure. So. Yeah. So, so it's almost like there is an insanity that sets in. So her dink- tinking on the piano constantly probably didn't help. Well, and as a, this other wife, uh, Connie Small, had reported, I mean, there was one woman, she said, you know, it was rough for her, but, you know, you managed, you make it through. But she said there was one wife of a keeper that ended up going to an asylum after being there because it just drove them so crazy and stuff. Now, of course, as is with all the stories we tell people, did it really happen? I don't know, because I found a PDF that had a ton of information on it. It had all of and it broke down all the keepers in rows, what years they served, who was the head one, who were the assistants. And then it would say when they left, why they left. There was nothing in any of those stories about murdered, murder, suicide, nothing. So I don't know where the story comes from. The thing is, there's enough people that have documented hearing that piano sound that something with a piano happened there. Whether it was this or not, if somebody just made up the story to go with it, something happened with a piano there. Well, exactly. And, and the stir crazier, because I think that's what cabin fever is too, just that insanity from being isolated. So, you know, a question I have is the piano there now. So, if people are hearing a piano sound and there's no piano there, that's even creepier. Well, he busted it into pieces with the axe before he turned. Uh, well, that's true. Good story. point. So, it wouldn't be. So, I mean, if there was a piano there, then it would make you go, hmm, unless somebody else. I can't imagine trying. How the hell did they get a piano to that place? That, the know. tramway, we have a picture in the show notes. It's not that big of a thing. So I don't know how the hell they transported the stuff they did. It's amazing what people did back in the days without the cranes and stuff we have today. Half the time when I look at things, I'm like, holy cow. But they did it. So Well, we want to thank you for joining us for this show. Next show, we have up Morse Mill Hotel. And this is in Missouri. So we're going to go to the Midwest. Midwest, back where Diane's family, a lot yeah, of them most come of my from. dad's side of the family hails from Missouri, and we will be making a stop there in St. Charles and uh, probably going with the St. Charles Ghost Tour there. So we're looking forward to that. As a matter of fact, this weekend we were sitting down and plotting out our road trip, so we've got lots of great stuff coming up for that. And we might actually spoil people because they want us to do more shows. And so they're going to be like, wait a minute, we want to keep getting them every day. <laughs> Yeah, because we're gonna we're planning on taking you, the listeners, on the road with us. So we'll be putting up little clips every day. So maybe it probably won't be a full show, and our audio won't be as good because we won't be in studio. But we'll be in a camper, and and we'll just be sharing our adventures and our hauntings with you as we go. Yep, if I can get all the logistics figured out, it should work out okay. And um, I mean, part of the reason why we don't put up as much stuff either is we have to pay for all of the the bandwidth and the megabytes and the storing everything and so you know we don't have a whole lot of money here so we do the bare minimum so that's why we probably won't be doing full shows for that it might be a 15 minutes each day or something so that we stay within our limits and stuff Unless, of course we start getting a ton of donations and we don't have to worry about limits again we want to thank you guys for joining us this evening i have been your host diane and this is denise y'all take care now bye bye 
Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.